Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You're often dealing with people who have extraordinary amounts of influence and power, and they want to put their thumb on the scales of justice and convince people not to cooperate or not to come forward or not to be forthright or not supply evidence, and that is extremely problematic. That's Ann Milgram. She's the former attorney general of the state of New Jersey and the first repeat guest here on Stay Tuned. This week, Ann and I answered some of your questions about the Mueller investigation. A lot has happened. A lot will happen. And I thought it would be great to bring her back this week because she's been a state prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, as smart as anyone I know on these issues, as thoughtful as anyone I know. And so we're going to run through some of the things that people have been talking about with respect to the Russia investigation. Hopefully we can clear some of it up for you. Before we get to that conversation, usually at the beginning of the show, I take questions from Twitter and from the phone line. During this conversation with Ann, we will be taking a lot of your questions along the way, but I thought I'd address a couple of quick things up top. So a lot of things happened this week. Let's run through a few of those quickly. First, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was pardoned by President Donald Trump, announced he's running for the Senate. That's bad. Representative Daryl Issa, who was a congressman from Southern California, announced that he's retiring. That's good. Representative Dana Rohrabacher, also a congressman from Southern California, if he were to announce that he was retiring, that would be even better. Senator Kamala Harris and Senator Cory Booker were named to the Senate Judiciary Committee. They will become only the second and third African-American senators ever to serve on that important committee, where I was a humble staffer for four and a half years. That's good. Steve Bannon, it was announced, was being thrown out of Breitbart. Who cares? Obviously, many other things also happened this week. Uh, For example, the debate about DACA and where that's going and what the president's plans really are. But we can't cover all of it. We wanted to devote this particular episode largely to the Mueller investigation. So before I get to that, I just want to make one correction to the episode we had last week where I interviewed New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman. In that conversation with Maggie Haberman, I suggested that most news outlets where there were allegations of sexual misconduct by people who worked at those news outlets were discovered and investigated and reported on first by other news outlets and what that might suggest about the ability of media organizations to police themselves. And I incorrectly said that the one place where the revelations came from the outlet itself was WNYC. Actually, it was New York Magazine that did the first report on allegations of impropriety on the part of people at WNYC. And I just wanted to correct the record. My guest this week is Ann Milgram. Coming up, We're going to tackle your questions about the Mueller investigation. I ask her questions, and she asks me a question or two also. Stay tuned.
Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Ann Milgram, welcome back to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're our first repeat guest. It's still unpaid. Yes, very much so. So we thought, since we had, I think, such a, a good time talking about the ups and downs of the Mueller investigation, the Russia investigation, as some people call it, a few months ago, as we begin the new year, yep. there are a few people who have been charged. Those those things have to proceed through the system and sort of take stock and, and make as we always do, educated guesses about what the tea leaves mean, what they say. Yes. You know, how far along, this is the question you get more, more than anything else, like when is this going to happen or yes. when is it going to be done? Yep. The president's lawyers say on a regular basis, it's done, it'll be yes. done tomorrow. Yep. And that never proves to be true. What's your sense? Well, it, the president's lawyers have been saying it would be done at the end of 2017 since essentially the day that it that it began. And it's obviously 2018 and it's not done. So we know that that's not accurate. What I think is a, a little bit tough on this one is that I think you and I would both assume, being former prosecutors, having led big, complex cases, that usually the last thing you do is you interview the person at the top, right? You're always working your way up. And so the recent reports that the president is likely to be interviewed by Robert Mueller or his team soon could lead us to think that, okay, they really are nearing the end. What sort of cautions me a little bit against that is I think that there are still pieces out there and other parts potentially of the investigation that we haven't answered the questions to. We haven't answered the question to, you know, who is Papadopoulos cooperating against? Who is Flynn cooperating against? You know, does it just go to the Trump obstruction? Or what about the Kushner piece? I mean, you and I 
haven't had a chance to talk about this, but Kushner is interviewed right before Flynn pleads guilty. His plea is announced, and it's solely a 90-minute interview based on those conversations with Flynn. It has nothing to do with anything else. And so what does that mean? And so to me, there are there are certain small indicators that there's a lot we still don't know that Mueller knows that we don't. And so what I would normally think is that they're going to interview Trump. That means that this is coming to an end. I'm not so sure that that's right. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, and what the fact of this reporting about a potential Trump interview means for where they are in the investigation. I agree with you. When we had, you know, significant targets and it was an overt investigation, meaning that we had engaged the lawyers and everyone knew about it, even when it was high-profile people, that usually marked the end. However, you know, I will say the first time there's a conversation about the potential high-profile target being interviewed doesn't have to happen you know, a week before the point. thing is over, yep. that can happen some months beforehand. I don't know, you know, how much to believe that. And I don't know how far in advance that conversation would happen. I guess a lot of people have been asking the question, does Trump talk? Right. What do you think? So I think that's a great question. So first of all, you and I probably should just say that, of course, everyone in the country has a Fifth Amendment right to not self-incriminate themselves. So anyone, including Trump, can say, look, I'm not talking because if I talk, you know, that would get me in trouble. I would be sort of admitting to a crime. And so I'm not going to do it. So do you remember if you read the the Michael Wolf book yet? I've not read the full book. I've read some of the ex- but one, excerpts. One thing in the book that was described was that somebody was briefing the president on the Constitution. He got bored by the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> so he's so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know <laughs> well, if that has some bearing on whether he understands the right against self-incrimination. Yeah. He doesn't seem to indicate that he has any knowledge of that right. Yeah, you got to make it through the first 10 amendments. Right. Okay, um, I'm sorry. So you were saying. So, you know, that's the general right that every American has, that everyone in our country has, the Fifth Amendment. Uh, so in the category of voluntary interview, which often is a courtesy that's afforded to people and certainly someone like the president, before you have to go the route of grand jury subpoena and compelled testimony in front of 23 Americans, which you can always do later. And I'm sure that's how Mueller would do it, is the first foray would be to say, hey, would you come in? Right. And then the second would be, you know, we'd be happy to issue you a subpoena if we need to. Which... So they say, hey, you want to come in and talk to us? And the president says through his lawyers, no, mm-hmm. go away. I'm busy. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, do you try to compel the testimony or not? And often we would. Yes. Do you think that they would in this case? I do. I do. I mean, I think... What we're seeing publicly reported, and again, you know, we're speculating and we don't know the inside of this. And so it's very possible there are pieces we don't know. But it's really clear from what's been publicly reported that Trump's lawyers are trying to control or set parameters around what that would look like. And so I don't think there's anything unusual about someone who's, you know, potential subject in a matter coming in, having their lawyers come in and say, hey, we'd like to just give you written answers. Right. Right. So the first question is, under oath or not under oath. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, naturally don't understand why someone would not be put under oath. And as you point out, uh, lying to the FBI under a statute called 18 U.S.C. 1001 is a crime. And it actually happens to be the crime with which two people in the Russian investigation have been charged. It's also common it in my experience yeah. to, to have someone come in first for an interview with 
the prosecutors and the and the federal agents. And as you said, you can always do the grand jury subpoena later. The reason you I think you would do a grand jury subpoena up front and, and sort of eliminate that interview is that you think it's so important that someone be formally under oath at that point in time. And I could see times when that would happen. Um, I think the other reason why you might do that is if you think you will only get one bite of the apple. And that is very possibly the case here, that Mueller and his team are aware that Trump Trump and his lawyers will push back very hard on having multiple sit-downs with the special counsel. And so if it's one bite of the apple, I think this is a strategic question of, right. do you do the grand jury so you have everything you might potentially need under oath? You know, the grand jury is the one that deliberates on potential charges against anyone. And so... Let's say you didn't do a grand jury. You have a federal agent and a prosecutor interviewing a witness. At that point, the record of that it, that conversation can still be put into the grand jury through the testimony of the FBI agent, right. through the federal agent. So it's not like the grand jury. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a big deal. You know what, Anne? Let's take a call from a listener on this very issue. Hi, Preet. This is Max from El Cerrito, California. And I'm wondering, with the news coming out this week that Mueller and his team are seeking to interview Trump, what is the main question you would be trying to answer? I'm sure Mueller has a lot more information than we know publicly, but given what we know, what is the big question you would be trying to answer? Max, great question from California. One small point before I put Anne on the hotspot, uh, and that is it's pronounced Mueller. It's Bob Mueller. I have a thing for the mispronunciation of last names, given my last name. And what do you think is a big question here? So I think um, that's a great question. You know, there are a few ways to think about this. The The first is the core basis for the special counsel, which is this investigation into Russia and whether or not the Trump campaign colluded with um, the Russians in, in hacking the election and, and releasing these emails. So that's one area of potential questioning. I think the areas that are more likely to be the focus of the conversation will be related to the obstruction questions, to the firing of Michael Flynn, to the firing of Jim Comey, to all the sort of pieces that we now know went around that. You've got more than two weeks when Flynn is in the White House after the White House has been told that Flynn is potentially compromised because he's been untruthful in his reports about his conversation with the Russian ambassador. What happened during that time? You've got um, a number of known comments by Trump around did he or did he not have these conversations with Jim Comey asking for loyalty, you know, asking him to go to basically let Flynn go. Then the conversations with the Russians in the in the White House about, you know, I had this Russian problem. So you've got a lot of pieces where you're going to want to fill in, plus all the things that you and I don't know sitting here because we don't know what Flynn has said and we don't know what other folks like Papadopoulos and potentially others have said. So let's talk about the the danger and risk then to Trump either in a grand jury setting or in a voluntary interview with agents to not being truthful. So let's say he's asked the question, did you uh, you know, ask Jim Comey for loyalty and did you ask Jim Comey to let go of the Flynn investigation? And Trump says, no, I never did that. I never said that. If there is, on the other hand, on the other side of that, Jim Comey's potential testimony, his contemporaneous notes of that, you know, other reasons to believe that Comey is telling the truth, it's kind of a he said, he said, is that a viable case of making a false statement? So, yeah, I mean, I think I think the question when it comes down to this is always, can you prove that this statement was false? And so we have Comey making this contemporaneous writing. 
We also have some evidence from conversations that have been reported with then Chief of Staff um, Priebus about him making notes about conversations when the president had called Comey and asked him to say publicly that Trump wasn't a subject of the right. investigation. And so the question I sort of would have is, is there other evidence like that out there related to these conversations? Because I think you and I both would feel in a thousand and one, if it's a he said, he said question, we'd want a little bit more than just it's not that we wouldn't find one of the individuals, particularly uh, Jim Comey, to be credible. I mean, he's made a contemporaneous statement. He's publicly stated it. But it would be really important, I think, when you think about the 1001, you have to be absolutely assured that it's correct. And again, the devil's a little bit in the detail on the language. And so, you know, as reported, it's a statement essentially asking the head of the FBI to not investigate someone. And so the words, I think, there specifically matter a lot. And you would also pull in all the folks Comey spoke to, right, immediately right. afterwards when he walked out. Right. What did he tell people? Did he say, hey, the president just told me to drop the Flynn case? What does that look like? And so if you could prove, if you could get that kind of corroboration, which is what prosecutors always look for, which is some evidence that what someone like Jim Comey is saying is true, independent evidence, um, then you can bring, I think, the thousand and one. If if Trump were to say, we never had that conversation, I didn't even mention Flynn. But that's when the, the lack of a recording of the conversation between us, you know, oh, Lordy, I hope there are, t- I hope there are tapes, yep. comes in handy, right? Because the phraseology matters. Now, the other thing about how those questions are answered is this. In the hypothetical I posed, I was talking about Donald Trump making a flat statement of fact, uh, you know, a flat denial. A categorical or denial, yeah. Right. Which most lawyers will tell their clients uh, maybe that's not the best thing to do when the interview is fraught with peril for you with respect to a false statement charge. And, and that's why, as you and I both know, one of the most common phrases you hear, uh, and people see this in congressional testimony all the time because that's public, but also in private depositions and in interviews, is the three words, the middle word being a contraction. I don't recall. Yes. Do you think Trump is going to so use we, weasel words or we not? Have, we have both probably heard that a million times yes. in testimony um, from other – from criminal defendants. But I've also heard it many times from my own witnesses, particularly law enforcement witnesses. Right. Um, and so completely that that is a very real possibility. I think what else is a real possibility is the sort of – Admit what you can't deny, deny what you can't admit. And so the, yeah, I had a conversation with, you know, for example, it could be something like, yeah, I had a conversation with Comey and, you know, I said Flynn was a good guy, but I never asked him to do anything related to an investigation. And I don't know why he would have taken, you know, some admission of, yeah, there was some conversation, but it wasn't a request to drop a case. Um, And so I see that as possible as well. Let's take another call. This is Andre from uh, Concord, California. Just curious, I was reading the New York Times article, uh, in which it appears of an aide to Attorney General Jeff Sessions was trying to get dirt on Mr. Comey, um, obviously to undermine him. I'm just curious if that implies that uh, the USAG was complicit in attempting to obstruct justice. Uh, it seems like an odd combination. Just curious what, uh, what your impressions of that might be. Thanks. Thanks, Andre. So why don't we and why don't we spend a few minutes talking about the role or non-role of the Attorney General of the United States, who was recused. The president's upset that he recused. There's also in that article that was referred to in the call 
the suggestion that the White House counsel, Don McGahn, tried to get Sessions not to recuse. But then it's a little bit about, you know, purportedly that uh, Sessions asked someone for dirt on Jim Comey. My initial quick reaction to yours is, I don't know what that means. I don't know why there would have been any assumption that there was dirt, what kind of dirt we're talking about, why somebody in one branch of government, the executive branch, would go out of his way to ask, you know, a staffer in another branch in the Congress for dirt. I think also there's a question as to whether it was directed by Sessions. You know, the... the Yeah, so are you... Are you underwhelmed by that report? Well, I think a lot of that the reporting is very interesting on the question of Trump lobbying to not have Session recuse himself right. because, you know, and the implication is that he wanted the protection of Sessions there to, to not allow these investigations to go forward. You know, the devil's in the details on that, too. But I think that is something that the special counsel's office will look at and want to understand and what was said and what the intent behind that was, why he wanted Sessions in place. The piece about the staffer, I think... It feels a little strange to me. I mean, it seems strange to me to have the attorney general of the United States have a member of his staff go out and look for dirt on the sitting head of the FBI, right? That's bad, right? It's, if that's true, terrible. I think I said if that's true, then then he should go. It's completely Not outrageous. because it's a crime. Yes. Because it's unprofessional. But there's another aspect of that that wasn't mentioned in the call. Again, I don't know if it's true. It was to find dirt on Jim Comey and that, that, that Sessions, again, according to the article, said, I want a negative article or a derogatory article on Jim Comey every day. Yes, which is would be also stunning if it were true. Right. And, and I think the way that I've seen the United States Department of Justice work and the way I think y- you probably have as well is it's hard to imagine a senior aide to the United States Attorney General freelancing like that. Right. That being said, there's no evidence at this point that it was directed by Sessions or by a senior member of Sessions' team. But I would want to understand more about that. I, I certainly would would want to know more about it. But it does feel incredibly strange to me. Also, and Jim Comey is not the guy who you think of. When you think about getting dirt on somebody, it's not Jim Comey. And at that point, if Sessions is already recusing, then the dirt on Comey, you know, is it to set it up so Trump can fire him? Is it to set it up so Comey resigns? It's a little bit unclear to me what the end game there is. Um, if it's true, and it, it may be true, we just... I feel like we don't have enough to know whether that's that's accurate. Also, just as an overall how your government works kind of issue, they're on the same team. The FBI director, the attorney general. That's a good point. Yeah. It's, they're, they're in the same family. And the FBI you know director what? works for the attorney general. Yeah. I mean. It's independent. To, to but, an extent. But technically, <laughs> right. But technically is within the department. Right. But like in any institution, you know, there are fights. There are turf fights. I had, we had All the fights, time. arguments, rivalries. And there, there's a robust exchange of opinions, and some people don't agree, but you keep that within the department. And the idea you go outside to try to sully someone is something you see in politics you don't see in the department. Yeah, and to put it in the front page of the newspaper, Correct. for sure. So if, if Sessions did something like that, given all the caveats, and we've kind of, you know, maybe not everyone will agree with how dismissive we've been of the report because it just doesn't seem so logical and credible— what does it do to the obstruction analysis? This is a little bit tricky. And a lot of times when you think about crime, you think about a single act, right? So a shooting or a stabbing or a theft of something. And there's a single act where if you can prove that it was this person who committed that act, you have a completed crime. Obstruction can be more complicated because it's often not one single thing. It may be multiple things. And so here, as we talk about it, we talk about, for example, statements by Trump to Jim Comey, the firing of Jim Comey, conversations with Comey about Flynn. And then in the context of all of this, this conversation about I don't want Sessions to recuse himself, 
And what, if anything, Sessions was doing, if he did anything, to stop the investigation from going forward? And so those are the kind of questions that I do think are relevant to Mueller's inquiry when it comes to the obstruction side of, were people trying to stop the investigation on Russia and and associations with the Trump campaign, were they trying to stop that from going forward? And were they doing it with the necessary corrupt intent to do that? And were they trying to stop, you know, either by getting people to lie, not tell the truth, by destroying evidence? I mean, whatever, whatever sort of examples of that or just to not prosecute a case, to basically sort of throw a case. Um, that presumes, by the way, that there was a case to throw for the purposes of obstruction. There need not have been. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> and that's an important point, too, right? right? I mean, at the time that people may be obstructing justice, they may not know actually whether or not the case could be charged, and they can still be taking steps to prevent law enforcement and prosecutors from understanding what happened. And so I think this Sessions piece is a part of the puzzle on its own, I don't think that constitutes obstruction. But again, I think obstruction can be a number of things. And when it comes to proving intent, there are a lot of conversations that you're going to want access to to understand what was driving somebody to do the things that they did. You know, you and I understand that, having been in law enforcement, that if you lie or obstruct in some way an investigation, even if ultimately, as you just said, there was no case to be made in the underlying investigation, it's still a crime. It's still an important crime. Uh, I think you and I both agree because it's like throwing sand in the eyes of the umpire. And if you don't make it a point to prosecute and hold accountable people who will just willy-nilly lie to investigators, you can't uncover the truth. You can't hold people accountable. It sets a terrible precedent. It's bad for deterrence. All those other good law enforcement, I think, injustice delivering reasons why you prosecute such a person. Also, I mean, it's it's often the cover-up, not the crime. Correct. And so, you know, I can't tell you how many juries I've had where what really gets them is the attempt to cover up, it's even if lie. it's not yeah. – it's the lie. It's not often – sometimes the initial is not such a big deal or not even charged, but it's the cover-up that, that really sort of galls people. So as a principle, we agree with that. And in practice, as you mentioned, you've seen that unfold in that way in court, and it resonates with juries. But here's my question. This is not a garden variety case. And – much of it is in the court of public opinion. Maybe it'll be in Congress if there's ultimately a case to be brought. But what do you think will be, fast forwarding a little bit, what do you think will be the reaction you know, politically and in terms of acceptance of you know, what Mueller does and the credibility of the Mueller team if at the end of the day it is clear that there was no underlying crime that could be proved but the president and or other people obstructed because they didn't want an investigation to go forward. But that investigation, if allowed to go unfettered, would not have resulted in a charge. How do you think people are going to react to that? Well, I, that's a, it's a great question, but I, I do I think mean, Trump will react. <laughs> yes. We'll say, I don't understand. It, there will be immediately be claims that the, the investigation is not legitimate because the underlying allegations were not proven. And if you listen to Trump's lawyers, they always talk about there's no evidence of collusion. They never talk about whether there's evidence of obstruction, really. I mean, it, the conversation is often about this collusion question. And so maybe that is part of a setup that if it comes down to that there's only evidence of obstruction, to basically say that that's not legitimate. So I think there are a few points. One, as you and I both know, this is done very frequently in the American criminal justice system at the state, local, at the federal level, and it is to ensure the integrity of investigations. And it's critically important that we be able to understand whether or not crimes were committed and that people be forthright in those conversations, whether it's with an FBI agent or sitting in a grand jury. I think that there are core values around that 
what I think is the more political side of this question of how people will will take it. You know, my first job was in the Manhattan DA's office with Robert Morgenthau, and we saw no politics. I mean, he saw his job, and I love him for this, to basically have the assistants do their jobs without fear or favor, without any concern about politics. Now, I don't know whether he was getting calls from politicians, and you and I can talk about this just for a second, having both done a lot of political corruption work. When I was AG in New Jersey, we did a lot of political corruption work. We prosecuted Democrats and Republicans. I similarly saw it as my job to protect the lawyers and the investigators on our team. We had a a pretty large statewide team from any politics. But I did field calls all the time from people in elected office who didn't want us to do investigations, right? I mean, some of it is— you hang up on them? I did hang up on them. (laughs) But some of it is stunning, and I think think the importance of not— having fear or favor or politics color the criminal prosecution space is so critically important to me. And it's it's how I was raised and how I was trained. And so the obstruction piece matters so much to me. And it matters so much, I think, particularly in corruption cases where we have to make sure that there's a way that we can understand what's happened. You're often dealing with people who have extraordinary amounts of influence and power, and they want to put their thumb on the scales of justice and convince people not to cooperate or not to come forward or not to be forthright or not supply evidence. And that is extremely problematic. So here's another thing that happens sometimes in investigations, particularly ones that are a big deal and the stakes are high and there's nothing that's higher stakes that I've seen in recent memory than, than this one because it involves sitting president of the United States of America. So you get pushback, not only from the president's lawyers, but also from political allies and others. And so one of the areas of pushback I want to talk about, it's not absurd, is this idea that the investigation is tainted uh, and there is bias on the prosecution team that includes FBI agents. And most notably, the revelation that there was an FBI agent who was assigned to the special counsel's office who was sending texts uh, to someone suggesting that he didn't like the president. This was before the election. My understanding is that as soon as that became known to Bob Mueller, you and I probably are right in guessing that Mueller would have been very angry yes, about that to I, be put in that I spot. I believe so, yep. And that person was removed. But on the basis of the fact of this person, this one agent out of many, was on the prosecution team, that the investigation should shut down and it's forever absolutely and permanently tainted. I have a view on that, which I'll share in a minute. What's your view on that? It is the most high-profile case that I can I can think of in recent memory, and obviously it's the most high-profile case going right now. And in my view, it has become very politicized. I think, and we see this in both parties, but I think there's a very strong effort right now to frame the conversation around Mueller and what he's doing. And so for someone like me who thinks of Mueller as this unimpeachable person, to see him these incredible efforts to impeach him on a daily basis, this strikes me as one of those many things. And I want to agree with you that this, to me, shows incredibly poor judgment on the part of the FBI agent and is problematic. And say without question, Mueller did the right thing. The minute he found out about it, he, you know, he fired the agent, the lawyer who was involved, and really, I think, tried to separate the investigation from it. I also agree with you that it would have caused him great distress to know that this was happening on his team. I do want to put this in the context a little bit of the old law school adage that, you know, when you have the facts, pound the facts. When you have the law, pound the law. When you don't have either, pound the table and yell really loudly. And there's a... and. 
we don't even know sitting here whether Mueller has the facts or the the law. What we do know is that the other side, the people who are Trump supporters, are very much trying to discredit Mueller and his team. And so there's a lot of pounding of the table about everything that could potentially raise issues. And so, again, trying to reframe this conversation, not about the criminal prosecution and the criminal process, but about is Bob Mueller biased? Is his team biased? And so I think a lot of this has to be seen through that lens. Right. So let's actually pound the table on a legal point that I don't know is fully appreciated by people who are thinking about this or talking about this in the public. And that is what the consequence is for a case like this case or any other case. When you have an agent who looks like he may have been biased in some way or behaved inappropriately or crossed some line, because, you know, the, the, the dirty secret of life and humanity is people sometimes make mistakes and sometimes people do bad things. And sometimes a cop commits a crime uh, or an, an agent has too close a relationship with a witness or has a beef with the victim or some other thing that not only doesn't look good, but requires them to be moved from a case. What I want to talk about for a minute is saying, first of all, there's no excuse for what this agent did. It was terrible judgment, should have been removed. That was the right thing. But what's the consequence for the whole thing? And the analogy, you and I were talking about this recently. You know, imagine there's a person who goes into a house and he kills an entire family, four-person family. And there's all sorts of evidence. There's DNA evidence, there's ballistic evidence, there's witnesses. And it turns out, and it sometimes happens, that one of the six agents or cops who's investigating that murder did something bad or had a bias um, and needs to be removed from the case. I'm not comparing these things, but just to use a hypothetical for the sake of discussion, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a murder. And it doesn't mean that the That's person correct. who committed the murder gets a get-out-of-jail-free card and can go home to kill other people. Sometimes investigations can become, and we hate it when it happens, and disciplinary action can be taken, people can be fired, removed, disbarred if it's an attorney. There are all sorts of sanctions to be imposed on the on the bad acting party. But it's still going to be true that you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt your facts based on corroboration and other witnesses. And once this this tainted agent is taken off, that doesn't mean, and courts will not hold, that the whole case has to be tanked. That's right. And if we think about this, take it take it even one step further. The grand jury still is called upon to decide whether or not a crime was committed. It's more likely than not that a crime was committed by this specific person. And some of the complication, I think, with the investigation is so much of it has to be behind closed doors. Grand juries are secret. There's a lot of reasons why um, we don't know a lot of the pieces that are happening. But the moment a case is indicted, it becomes a very public and very transparent process through which the government is required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is guilty. And so certainly the defense lawyers could raise charges of bias or allegations that the indictment should be thrown out because it was politically motivated. All that would be heard by a judge. The government would have the opportunity to respond and the case goes forward. And again, at the end of the day, the question is whether a crime was committed and that can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, And so this is an example of bad judgment. I agree with you. You know, people are people and we often see mistakes and problems and that's normal in the criminal justice system. But the cases, the way that they move forward, all of these things will be tested and the defense lawyers will have the opportunity to challenge all of it in a court of law in front of the public. And so there'll be a real opportunity to vet these questions. And again, at the end of the day, it will be up to a jury to decide are people guilty of the crimes. Okay. Uh, Why don't we take another call? 
Hey, Preet. This is Debbie Clark from Shorterville, Alabama. My question is, with Trump, can he pardon himself? And do you feel that Mueller is going to give the cases to the states to go ahead and prosecute once and if Trump does pardon uh, all these people? Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Again with the Mueller. <laughs> Isn't that the name of a spaghetti or something? I don't know. Mueller. But, but we have to be nice to people from Alabama this week. Uh, they have much to yes. celebrate. Great questions. So we spent all this time talking about what happens in the investigation, you know, what evidence there might be, what charges could be brought, what referrals could be made for impeachment, if if any. But of course, there are possibilities of all of this being short-circuited in one, two, two categories of them, as I think about it. One is a lot of pardons, and the other is the shutdown of special counselors. So this person was asking about pardons. Do you have, A, a prediction, and B, a thought on the propriety of such pardons? And I'm going to stay away from predictions. Um, <laughs> Very smart. <laughs> there's, a, I think, a ton of things in 2017 none of us would have guessed, and, and I'm sure that will be true of 2018, too. So I, I think the pardon question is is really important one. And there is an Office of Legal Counsel, which is a an office in the Department of Justice. There's an opinion that was written during the Nixon era, essentially saying that the president cannot pardon himself. Essentially, the same person can't be judge and jury in the same case. And that's a long-held established principle in um, American jurisprudence. Can and we so, just pause on that for a second? Yeah. And just explain to folks the significance of the Office of Legal Counsel and what that means? So the Office of Legal Counsel, they they really are the ones who interpret the law for the United States Department of Justice and for the president when it comes to questions like this. It is unbelievably important office and generally has the last word. And so when you look at who argues cases before the Supreme Court, it comes out of the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, the Solicitor General's office works closely with them. But OLC they're really in charge of driving the policy and what the interpretation of the law is. And so that... So it's it, a big deal. It's a big deal. That's a better way to say it. It's yeah, a big deal. That's a legal Let's term. Let's cut the other side. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was... that was Look, because I don't... You know, people... If the president just waits for people to get indicted and he pardons them, is that in any way possible to be brought into an obstruction case? So... It seems odd. It seems very odd. I mean, I, I think the short answer is probably no. So, um, so the second part of the question gets to a point that a lot of people have made, and it's worth spending a minute or two on it, and that is the president can pardon other people in connection with a federal charge. But we have a, we have a federal system here, so there are federal prosecutors and federal laws and there are also local and state laws. And so if any member of Donald Trump's you know, administration, associates or family members – it's charged by a state attorney general or a district attorney. The Constitution does not give them the right to do that. That has to be done by the governor of the state, if at all. And so the theory has been circulating that Bob Mueller has made an arrangement with the New York attorney general, Eric Schneiderman, with whom I uh, worked when I was U.S. attorney, to ensure the inability of the president to derail accountability because there will also be these state charges. and. That's a beautiful and intelligent and crafty marriage that has taken place. And I want to ask you about this in a moment, because you're the attorney general. But my quick response to that is I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, that, you know, generally, generally speaking, and I mean no offense to anyone, uh, but Ann, you were a federal prosecutor and also a state prosecutor. Generally speaking, the feds, when they were investigating something, didn't have that much interest in sharing things with Completely. the locals because yep. they thought, you know, we got this. On occasion, you felt the need 
to work with your counterparts in the DA's office or the state attorney general's office because those people who are independently elected and have independent mandate themselves are looking at some of the stuff that you're looking at. And you don't want them to get in your way and to a lesser extent vice versa. And so you do what adults do and you collaborate with and you coordinate with the local prosecutor so you're not screwing up each other's cases. And if a and sometimes yeah. even there are different laws. And so the fed, right. the federal government may have one set of laws, the state has a different, and there can be all kinds of reasons why cases would go state or federal if both sides are looking at them. And so I had regular meetings with the head of the FBI, with the U.S. Attorney's Office when I was AG, and for certain, this is Bob Mueller's case. This is the special counsel's case. I see no version of events in which he has come to any agreement with any state AG including, on this. Including Eric Schneiderman. Including Eric Schneiderman. Um, at the end of the case, if there was a reason that the special counsel's office had reason to believe that a state crime was committed that could be proven, they could make a referral. There's, right. They could those, have the right? grand jury make... Yes. Yes. And we, uh, we made we made referrals like that too. Yes. And, and that is a totally legitimate thing to do. But in the middle of an investigation, I find that to be completely not believable. If you and I are thinking about how this plays out, and I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of strategic thinking and theories about how it can go. And we just we've talked about a couple, some of which I think are are potentially viable and some of which I, I don't. But let's say hypothetically, um, we get to the end of the investigation and Mueller has found evidence of obstruction of justice on the part of on the part of the president. Yeah. Potentially other charges. But this is this is a deep hypothetical. But let's say we get to that point. Does he charge him criminally? Does he refer him to the House? You know, I had sort of, you and I have talked about this before, and I had sort of thought, well, it has to be a referral to the House. But I've since read more about it. And, you know, the plain language of the Constitution does not make the president of the United States immune from prosecution. But there's Um, an OLC opinion on this, too. There's an OLC opinion on it that was done by Bill Clinton's Department of Justice that says you can't do it. That says says a sitting president cannot be indicted criminally by the feds. Yes. I don't know. The OLC. I don't know. Does that, does that, does does that, that govern, bind it? Does that govern or not? And there's never been an example of it having been done. It, it, look, I, I don't know. But it seems to me, off the top of my head, that if you were in a position to decide something that is as weighty as bringing a federal criminal charge against a sitting president of the United States, that you want the authority to be able to do that, to be crystal clear. And even if there's a good argument, I think... And even if there's a good argument, and I think that's who Bob Mueller is too. Yeah, and I think even if there's, and even if there's an argument that by smart people and a new OLC opinion that says, well, based on the structure of the Constitution, structure and language of the Constitution, et cetera, the arguments that lawyers, constitutional lawyers, make, a sitting president can be charged. Given what a big deal it is, and given the need for there to be credibility on the decisions made by the special counsel's office, and given the faith that we want people to have in the process. It strikes me as, you know, not everyone's going to love this. It strikes me as not a good idea for the long-term you know, faith and confidence in the rule of law. To hang your hat on that, I think, is not a great idea and doesn't strike me as the kind of person Bob Mueller is. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think it's just a fascinating question. But at the end of the day, I think Mueller will be like he always is, which is straight down the middle of the road. You know, he'll stay within the confines of what's established and reasonable. Yeah, but my caveat to that, you know, is, and this is not in the context of this particular case, because, you know, some of the allegations obstruction could be serious and, you know, conspiracy to undermine the election could be serious. But I could imagine a different circumstance. This again, I'm not talking about this administration. You could imagine a circumstance in which 
you know, a special counsel uncovers deeply, 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 even worse crimes, you know, conspiracy to, to murder, you know, give aid to the enemy, all sorts of even worse things that everyone would agree there's overwhelming evidence of. That you should bring a criminal charge. And you bring the criminal go charge. Go to the courts on it. Yep. And go to the courts because right. it's so dire. And these are judgments that prosecutors have to make, you know, and a little less clarity in the law can sometimes be counterbalanced by overwhelming clarity of bad conduct and harm. That's my thought. Let's take another call. Hi, Preet. My name is Noble Rogers. I'm calling from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I just want to know, are you a stable genius? <laughs> That's a great question. I believe the from quote. Oklahoma. I believe the quote from the president was very stable genius. I am not, but I know someone who is. Her name is Anne. <laughs> I was going to say, I think you are. I'm. I'm neither stable nor a genius. And it's been like three hours talking about this. And I appreciate your coming in. I just want to say to people, I had ten more items on my list. You know, what's going to become of Michael Flynn? How long is it going to take for the trial against Manafort to take place? Are there further shoes to drop with respect to some people we've been talking about, Carter Page and others? We can't get to all of it because it's complicated and it's hard to sort of do an explanation of things and cover a lot of topics like, you know, you sometimes see on TV where people have three or four minutes to talk about it. So we took a deep dive on a few issues and hopefully we'll see you back here and, and talk about this some more in the future. Thanks for having me. So this is the part of the show where I like to talk about something that struck me personally this week. And so let me tell you a quick story about what I was doing this past Saturday. So this past Saturday, I spent the entire day at Chaminade High School in Mineola, Long Island. I was not there for remedial math class. I was there attending a speech tournament run by the Forensic League where high school students from the New York area compete in speaking competition. And I wasn't just sort of random, randomly there. One of my sons competes in speech tournaments. He doesn't go to high school at Chaminade, but somewhere else. And I'm a volunteer parent who, you know, sort of goes to these tournaments from time to time and judges the kids on their speaking ability, which I think is a, is a fun thing to do in a way to spend time with my son also. The particular category uh, that my son does, and, and two rounds of which I judged, is called extemporaneous speaking. So for those of you who don't know what that category is, let me just describe it for a moment. A student is given a choice of topics from international relations or foreign policy or domestic policy or economics and is given 30 minutes to research the topic, come up with a point of view on the question being asked, formulate a persuasive speech in support of his or her argument, stand up before an adult judge and give a polished seven-minute, multi-part speech without any notes at all. I'll tell you, when I was in high school, uh, I did public speaking and competition. I one time did the category of extemporaneous speaking, and I have never been more terrified in my life. I think I almost threw up like three times. Never again. So to give you a sense of how difficult this was, I actually took some of the topics home with me. Here are the kinds of questions that these students, 16, 17 years of age, were asked to answer on a Saturday. For example, 
How should the international community respond to China's disregard of recent sanctions against North Korea? That's not so easy. Here's another one. Young man came into the room and handed me his question, which was this. Is the DRC headed towards another civil war? And I'm thinking, is the Dominican Republic? What's the... Oh, it's the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this young man gave a polished, intelligent, smart, seven-minute presentation on the subject without notes. It was a little awkward when another student walked into the classroom to give a speech on the topic she had been assigned, which was, should recent revelations regarding Russian involvement in the U.S. 2016 election be explored? I kind of had a view on that, but I tried to keep my view to myself. The point of the story is not to tell you about my Saturday or to brag a little bit about my son, uh, who has the courage that his father didn't to enter this very difficult academic exercise. But it's to tell you that I was so impressed that there are all these people who were not even of voting age yet, who were the future leaders of the country, who were so smart, who were so prepared, who were so thoughtful, who spend their time not only going to class and doing all the things you need to do to become a successful student, but also know so much more than I know about international relations and economics and everything else, that it was literally the most hopeful moment I've had about the country and where we're going. Because if we have young people like that, then we have a little less to worry about than I thought. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ann Milgram. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really does help new listeners discover the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake Maccabee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.